Great. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Good to be together. Um, we're continuing this morning with this little series we've been looking at uh, called Bless. And we're talking about how can we be a blessing to the places that we live, the places that we work. And so we've looked at uh, B, begin with prayer. Um, L is listening to people. E is eating with people, one of my favorites. And um, today, S, we're looking at how do we serve people and what does it mean to be called by Jesus to serve people where we live, where we work, where we play. So I was, um, it's a classic English autumn problem, right? I was on a train this week and it was delayed. And the reason it was delayed, the guy in the microphone says, I'm very sorry, the train is delayed because there are leaves on the line. Right? I was thinking about that. I was thinking a train is like, and a leaf is like nothing. You know, and yet, if there's enough leaves on the line, it can stop a train. And when we're talking about being a blessing in the places that we live, and today talking about serving people, you may think, man, I'm just a little leaf, and I did one little good deed to someone. But hey, if there's enough of us doing enough good stuff in our community... We can stop a train. And um, so it's a simple idea, but that's really what we're talking about. Um, there's a thing in uh, kind of the work with refugees uh, at the moment called the Refugee Highway. And the idea is that if a refugee from Syria, let's say, makes it to the UK, they've probably been helped in Lebanon by Christians. And then they've made it to Turkey, and they've probably been served in Turkey by Christians. And then they make it on one of those little boats to Greece, and it's probably Christians who served them in the refugee camps in Greece. And then they made it to Germany, and it was probably the churches in Germany that served them and helped them. And so by the time they make it to the UK, they've already been done good to by Christians all the way through their journey. And so, so many Syrian refugees are making it to the UK and going, man, there's just something about everywhere I go, it's Christians that are helping me, you know. And, and it, but it's just what we do. It's in our DNA. It's who we are, right? We can't help it. And so, there is just something about Christians are people who serve. That's what Jesus taught us to do. That's what we do. That's our DNA. So, there's nothing particularly fresh in this idea. It's, it's what Christians are, it's what we do, it's the impact that we have. You know, everyone here will leave Reading better than you found it. Just because that's who we are. And we'll be a blessing. And today we're going to read a little story from the life of Jesus, where Jesus models this for us and teaches this to us. And the story is from John chapter 13. And I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 1. John 13 and verse 1. And John was there, so he saw this, he experienced it, and he's written it down for us as like a first-hand eyewitness testimony. John 3, 13 and 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this happened, that John was there, that he wrote it down, that it's come to us. I thank you these stories have been read for thousands of years across the world by people that love you and want to follow you. And we just say, Lord, we're part of that. We're here. We love you. We want to follow you. I pray that today you take something that's really simple and you make it really, really deeply true. Lord, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our hands. I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would leave Reading better than we found it in some small way. I pray that leaf upon leaf would fall onto the train tracks of Reading and that we would stop trains together. I pray, oh God, that our service and our acts of kindness would have a cumulative chronic effect in the bloodstream of Reading to transform this place for your glory. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus knows that tonight, this is the Last Supper. He knows that after dinner, we're going to go out. He's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, arrested, unjustly tried, unjustly found guilty, condemned to death, led out onto a hill outside the city in front of thousands of watching pilgrims and crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus knows that's going to happen. This is the climax of why he came into the world. And so he takes this opportunity, his last supper, having dinner with his friends. What would you do, you know, your last moment to say goodbye to your friends? Yeah, yeah. And he says, I'm going to use this moment to teach something really important to these guys. I want them to hear this last thing that I'm going to teach them and that I'm going to show them. And then he teaches them something, but classic Jesus, he teaches them by acting it out, by doing something physical so that they will remember. And imagine the shock dawning on their faces as he takes off his outer clothes and lays them down. He wraps a towel around himself. He starts to pour water into a bottle, and the shock is just kind of draining the color. What are you doing? And we'll come on to why it was so shocking in a moment. But shock is actually a really powerful teacher. It gets past information and it kind of stays with people. And I actually, today, I was saying to the team, I would really like to undress and wrap a towel around my waist. And they said, no, that would be too shocking. Uh, and it's too cold and too early in the morning. So we're not doing that. And I'm not even going to ask you to imagine it. But the, the shock, the horror of this moment, Jesus, what are you doing? And, and, and even in the Syrian refugees example that I gave earlier, you know, that... There's a shock to that. These guys have been taught their whole lives in the Muslim nation that they've grown up in that Christians hate them, that Christians are arrogant and haughty, don't love Muslims, don't care about them. And yet every place that they've gone, they've had the shock of encountering Christians. And it's just, it, it, it switches people's minds. It, it, it surprises people. And I'd say that's one of the challenges for us is how can we not just play the role that people think Christians play? Oh, Christians, yeah, they are goody two-shoes. They're judgmental. They're more holy than now. They're always trying to get us to be better. How can we shock and surprise people and say, actually, let's find ourselves in the armpits of Reading scrubbing. Let's find ourselves in unexpected places among unexpected people doing unexpected things. Let's show the world what God is like by shocking them a little bit. Jesus here, he clothes himself, positions himself, and takes the action of 
a slave for these guys culturally. And for them, slave-free was a fundamental distinction, like male-female or like Jew and Gentile. It was a line that people don't cross, and yet Jesus here, as a free person, is positioning himself in the world of a slave to do what only a slave would do, which is wash people's feet. And not just a slave, this was considered so shocking and dirty that Jewish people wouldn't even let a Jewish slave wash their feet. It had to be a Gentile slave. This was a a task that was kind of the lowest of the lowest of the low in society. This is your job. And Jesus does that. It's hard for us to think about. Like, we know feet are gross, but for us, you know, and we don't really want to wash other people's feet. That is quite gross. But for us, it doesn't always carry the the absolute horror. Um, Maybe it does. Maybe you have a particular foot paranoia. Um, but it doesn't carry the, the horror of meaning for us. In some parts of the Middle East today, still, you can't talk about feet or shoes, or you have to apologize before. You might say, oh, I've got a real itchy, sorry for this four-letter word, foot. Seriously. And in some cultures today, it's that offensive. In our culture, the actual equivalent would be, in terms of things you don't talk about in public, private parts. When I was at university, I was working my way through uni. I was working as a carer in an old people's home. And part of the job was washing old people's private parts. And it was the horriblest part of the you know, Drinking tea with an old lady and chatting, that's fine. But actually having to wash someone who can't wash themselves. Like afterwards, you're just scrubbing with soap and water. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the equivalent for us today of what Jesus is modeling here. So what is Jesus teaching his disciples here in this kind of dramatic action in this last moment? He's teaching them two things through doing this. The first is this, okay? He is acting out, he is physically demonstrating to them the wonderful story of salvation. He's actually showing them his journey in an acted out version in terms of coming from heaven to earth to serve people with the washing of salvation, So the first thing he's doing is he's acting out the gospel. So he was sitting at the table and then he gets up and he takes off his robes and he clothes himself as a slave. And Jesus, we know, even from the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God at the beginning. And so Jesus, as you know, doesn't have a beginning. He wasn't born He has existed for all eternity in the glorious presence of the Father, sitting at this table with the Father, eating heavenly sweets in eternal bliss and joy and peace, untroubled. And yet he voluntarily steps up, takes off his garments of light and power and immortality, and comes into the world naked as a vulnerable baby. Jesus is born as a tiny baby into our world. He takes flesh, he squeezes his divine nature, not just into a human body, but into a human mind, into human emotions. He squeezes the divine nature into this tiny little thing that's so vulnerable it could get trampled by the very elephants that he himself had created. Can you imagine? And he's born naked and vulnerable, 
in the margins of the world in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. We read in Philippians 2 about this. Who, though he was in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. It's an incredible phrase. And he took the very form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And, and, and actually, this, this thing of coming into the world to save the world, but doing it by taking off your, your power and your divine prerogatives and humbling yourself, is very anti-heroic. Last night, as a family, we were watching Spider-Man 2. I don't know why it was on TV and we ended up watching it. It's a very old film, but Spider-Man 2, the whole premise of it is that Spider-Man, he's got these superpowers and he keeps saving people and doing incredible, powerful things. But also, he's got a girlfriend that he loves and he wants to live a normal life and not have his powers so that he can have his girlfriend. And so he's torn between love and heroism. And actually, essentially, he, he can't help when there's robbers running past or things happening to be a superhero. To, he has this instinct to be a hero. And maybe it's because it's written by Americans and there's this kind of heroism thing in the culture. But if the Jesus story had been written by Hollywood, it would look very different. Because he wouldn't be able to help occasionally. You know, when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, there would be this kind of smashing, powerful battle between Jesus and the devil. Or when he's on the cross and he says, I could call down all these angels to go and he would do that. There would be moments where he manifests his power to save himself. But he never does that. He never does that. He's, he's taken off his garments. He's left them behind. And he's come as a vulnerable human servant. And he never reaches for them back again. The only times in Jesus' journey where you see these flashings of his hatred of injustice and these little outbursts of power is when he's among the poor and the broken of the world and he's overwhelmed by anger and sadness. They're the only times. He never does it to defend his own honor. But he's there with a, a demonized child who's deaf and mute. He can't help it. There's a flash of power. He's there with Mary and Martha weeping because their brother's dead and all their hope has gone. He can't help but raise him from the dead. So there's, there's these tiny little moments tiny little shapes of Jesus's eternal power, the one who made everything. Can you imagine? And at the cross, Jesus is betrayed for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. That's what it would cost you to buy a slave in the slave market. He dies the death of a slave, not of a free person, crucifixion, in order to liberate us from our slavery to sin. In every major religion of the world, there's a form of washing that you have to do as part of your devotion to come to God. You need to be clean to come to God, and so there's special washings, special rivers, special places. But in this thing we're celebrating here, God himself comes and washes us. We don't have to wash to come to him. He comes himself to do the washing. So is your soul dirty? Is there a stain on your conscience or in your memory that you can't get rid of? Because it's so deeply burned into you 
something that you did or something evil that was done to you? Have you picked up dust walking along the roads of life and is there filth that's got under your fingernails? Come to Jesus. Let him wash you. And when we do baptisms today, at the end of this meeting, that is a symbol. It's just an outward symbol. It's not holy water, but it's showing the washing that Christ has done to us poor, broken, dirty sinners in order to present us to his Father. So that's the first thing he's teaching. He's saying this is the story of salvation. He's just modeling the journey of Jesus. It's really helpful for us to see the condescension of Christ. Secondly, he's also, as his final parting gift to them, setting the disciples an example. Because he says this in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I served you, you serve others. I washed you, you wash others. I humbled myself to bless you, you humble yourselves to bless others. I took the lowest place imaginable, you do the same. Simple, but world-changing. The way to change the world is not to come in powerful, it's to come in humble. The way to change the world is not to shout, it's to serve. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, or the word here is apostle, greater than the one who sent him. So here you've got servant or slave and messenger or apostle in the same verse. It's very clear. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And again, that's classic Jesus teaching. The blessing isn't on the knowing. The blessing is on the doing. So let's wash the feet of our town, Reading. How do we do that? Well, which are the shameful, unmentionable parts of our town? Don't shout them out. They're unmentionable. But which are the places that no one wants to live? Well, let's go live there. Who are the people at school or at work that no one wants to talk to? Well, then we'll talk to them. Who's the guy on the bus that no one wants to sit next to? We'll go sit next to him. Christians are attracted to such places. We can't help it. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. When we were born again, we get the nature of Christ. This is who we are. This is what we do. We can't help it. Okay, there's something in my DNA that really can't resist cake. I don't know why. My mum can't resist cake. My grandma couldn't resist cake. It's just in our family. It's a genetic predisposition to cake loving. You want to be my friend? Make me a cake. Right? If I'm in a room and there's cake, I just find myself gravitating towards it. I can't help it. It's just in my DNA. 
Okay? As Christians, there's something in our DNA where we gravitate towards injustice. We gravitate towards brokenness, mess, pain, darkness. That's where we go. That's what we do. We can't help it. It's who we are. Amen? In our town, if there's darkness, we move towards it. If there's an issue, we move towards it. That's what we do. The second thing, just it, again, it's really obvious stuff, but feet are the opposite of head, physiologically and culturally. The, the, so this challenges the power narrative. The power narrative says the way to change a place is to change the head. Okay? So we want friends in high places if we're going to change the world. Jesus came to change the world. He made friends in low places. He made enemies in high places. It's not let's invite the local MP to our carol concert. It's who are the people that no one wants to invite? Who are the feet? Let's invite them to our carol concert. That's how you change the world. It's the same at work. Worldly ambition in your workplace pushes you upwards. You want to make the connections. You want to network with the influential people. You want to impress the boss. How can I look big? Godly ambition in your workplace pushes you downwards. How can I look small? How can I bless others? How can I make other people look great? How can I work on behalf of the team so that everybody wins and no one knows it was me? So true humility is the third and final thing that we see here in the example of Jesus. Because the problem is this, it's possible to serve people and still leave them feeling patronized. It's possible in the missionary world to do what they call the white savior thing, which is, you know, a rich white person goes to Africa and helps the poor, broken little natives and brings something lovely from their whiteness. We're completely against that. Just so you know, we're completely against that. Or middle-class Christians who want to help some kids on the estate, so they move on to the estate, but then they always go back to their nice middle-class house at the end of the day. That's not what we're talking about here. You don't see that in Jesus. You know, in bless, we haven't started with serve. It's really important. We've done praying, we've done listening, we've done eating, we've done building relationship and connection. And Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples in the context of loving mutual friendship. They're sitting together on the floor. It's not the Da Vinci painting of the big high table with Jesus in the seat of honor. They're sitting, to, it's Palestinian. They're sitting together on the floor around a big shared bowl. He's dipping food in the bowl with people that he created, with people like Peter that are going to betray him through weakness, with people like Judas who's going to betray him through the power of the devil, and yet he's dipping food in the bowl together with them. And they're sharing, it's horizontal. You see, the church is not fake. The genius of the church is that because we're together, round God's table, because we've all come with dirty feet, because we all need the washing of the grace of God, because we've all shown each other our wounds, no one here can go, I'm sorted and I'm going to help the poor people who aren't sorted. I've got it all together and I, because we know you. I've eaten food with you. I know you're not sorted. How dare you say that, right? 
So we show each other our mess without judging, without fear of being judged, and our pain and our weakness. And the power of God is made manifest in our weakness and our vulnerability. That's what Jesus models here in taking off his powerful robes and coming in the position of a servant and a slave. And so the genius of the church is that we can wash others because we know that we ourselves needed washing. So friends, let's allow Jesus to wash our feet. You know, Peter in this story, he resists. No. If you're dirty, if you've got a stain, if you've picked up some grit along the way, allow the Lord to wash you. He loves doing that. He's gracious. He's ready. He's got his sleeves rolled up, his bowl of water ready. He's like, come on, all you need to do is put your feet in the bowl. That's all I'm asking. I'll do the rest. And friends, let's wash the feet of our town. Let's pray together.